guys can be seated. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 6, which is where we'll be this morning as we continue our series on the theophanies of Scripture. So Isaiah chapter 6. Now, when I was a boy, I, like all boys, was infatuated with fire. I assume most of you know what that feels like. As a boy, I loved to make fires and see how big I could get them and throw different stuff on them and see what would burn and what wouldn't. And and my favorite thing to do, like all boys, was to go to the garage and grab some kind of aerosol can, so bug spray or spray paint, and spray it over the fire because you'd have an instant flamethrower, which is really exciting for a little boy. But it's super dangerous. And so my dad, he decided one day that he was going to teach me and and my brother a lesson about fire. So he built a little fire in the backyard. We had a huge yard. And, and he went to the garage and he grabbed a nearly empty can of Rust-Oleum. And, and, he, and he threw it on the fire, assuming that it would go pop real loud and, and that would scare us straight. Uh, but that empty can of Rust-Oleum, it didn't go pop. Apparently it was just the right mixture of gases in it. It went off like a bomb, shot a fireball up that caught a pine tree on fire and singed my brother's eyebrows 15 feet away. It absolutely terrified us, scared us to death. Not just my brother and I, but my dad too. None of us played with fire ever again. You see, the problem was, is I had approached fire as if it was a toy. I had taken it lightly. I didn't think anything of it. That was corrected. Never again for the rest of my life did I ever take spray cans and fire lightly again. When I saw other little boys grabbing spray cans and trying to light them on fire, I ran the other way. Because I had had within me instilled a healthy dose of fear from that encounter with the power of fire. I never took it lightly again. Still don't today. Well, that's basically what our passage is about this morning. It is designed to instill within us a healthy dose of of fear and reverence for something that our world takes very lightly. Not fire, but, but the presence of God. The existence of the God of the Bible. Isaiah wrote to an audience that had a small view of God. They took God lightly. God, the God of the Bible, was just one of many gods to them. He was okay. He was useful. But he wasn't that big. He wasn't that great. He was not big enough to meet all of their needs. He was not great enough to deserve all of their obedience. They had a small view of God. Now, now that idea, that small view of God should sound pretty familiar to us because that is the view of God shared by most Americans. I don't know if you realize this. There's not actually a lot of committed atheists in America. Most Americans believe that God exists. He's just not that big a deal to us. So in America, God, he he gets one day of the week, Sunday, if he's lucky, and he gets to to speak about spiritual things like prayer and and the Bible, but, but all the real world things of life, like your career, your job, your relationships, entertainment, all of that kind of stuff, that's our domain, not his domain. And God's word, well, it's really just a suggestion, right? Because we're the ones who define what is good, what is true. To most Americans, God exists, but he's just really, really small. He lives in a little box, that they only pull out maybe one day a week, maybe only on occasional holidays, maybe only when life gets really desperate. That small view of God, it, it's not just out there, though it's, it's also in here. It's, it's crept into the, to the churches around us. This small view of God, we know theologically that God is incredibly important, and yet to many of us, God is just one of many important things in life. 
We know he should get more time, more attention, more of our devotion. And yet there's just so many things that we need to do. So many things that we want to do. There's errands to run. There's, there's our job. There's the kids. There's school. There's that hobby we love. There's that big game on TV. There's so many things that we want to do. And so with our mouths, we say that God is our number one priority. But with our actions, we say otherwise. I think if we'll we'll be honest with one another for a moment, I I think all of us in this room, myself included, suffer at least from time to time from a deficient view of God. We take God too lightly. He's too small in our eyes. That's why we need this passage, Isaiah chapter 6. This moment when Isaiah has an explosive encounter with God. A face-to-face encounter with God and all of God's glory and holiness and majesty. It instills in Isaiah this this fear, this reverence that led him to a lifetime of of worship and obedience. That's what I'm praying that Isaiah 6 will do for us this morning. That we will enter into this passage and have this explosive moment of clarity as we see God in all of his glory and all of his holiness that will instill in us a healthy dose of of fear and reverence that will lead us to worship and to obedience. So let's jump in. Let's, let's look at this passage, Isaiah chapter 6. Let's set the scene. Look with me at, at verse 1. Let's just read the very first part of verse 1. It says, in the year of King Uzziah's death. King Uzziah, let let me set the stage. Uh, Isaiah, he was a prophet to the southern kingdom. So, So there's Israel and you have Israel, the northern kingdom. They were rich, they were powerful. And then you have Judah, the southern kingdom. And relatively speaking, they were pretty poor and pretty weak. Except during the reign of Uzziah. Uzziah reigned over Judah for 52 years, really long rule. And and for most of that time, he was faithful to God and God blessed him with great success. He, He enlarged the borders of Judah. He built the economy. He built great cities. Uzziah was a rising star in the history of Judah. But then as he grew older, he grew prideful. And and on one fateful day, he rebelled against God. He acted disobediently, just blatant rebellion. And God struck him with leprosy. He, he went and, and removed himself from society. He died as an outcast. And all of the gains that Uzziah had won were lost just overnight. And so that left Isaiah and, and the rest of Judah feeling incredibly disillusioned and incredibly fearful. Their great star, Uzziah, had failed and died. And in the midst of that disillusionment and fear that everyone was feeling, God showed up. Isaiah chapter 6. God showed up and and revealed himself in this face-to-face encounter with Isaiah. And in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, this this face-to-face theophanic encounter between Isaiah and God, God is going to reveal five things about himself. Five things that he wants us to learn about the God of the Bible. So let's look at this passage as God reveals himself to Isaiah. Look with me starting in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. We'll pause there. 
pause there as we begin to look at, at what God reveals about himself to Isaiah in this passage. First thing that God teaches us is that our God is supreme ruler. You see that idea repeated over and over, actually in the name of God. We call him Lord. Lord in Hebrew, it's the word Adonai. And it, it emphasizes God's sovereignty, his authority over the world, that, that God gets to call the shots, that God gets to decide what will happen in the world. God is Lord. Uh, Isaiah wants us to understand that God is Lord. He is sovereign, not just over the nation of Judah. Because you notice, Isaiah says that God sits on a throne that is lofty and exalted. In the ancient world, you, you showed how authoritative a king was by how tall you built his, his throne and how, how well you decked it out. The furnishings in his room told you how powerful he was. And Isaiah wants us to understand our God, his throne is way up there, way up above the skies and it is totally decked out. Nicest throne you've ever seen. That means that our God, he has authority over the entire earth. The seraphim say the same thing when they call God the Lord of hosts. That's an interesting phrase in Hebrew. It means literally the Lord who commands armies. That's what Lord of hosts means. The Lord who commands or rules over armies. So Uzziah, he had an army of about 300,000 well-trained men. That's big. That's a large army. But that's nothing compared to God. Because God has authority over every army on earth. God rules over all armies, even the evil ones. Later in the book of Isaiah, the armies of Assyria, the armies of Babylon, which are really evil guys, even they must obey God. Because God is commander of all armies. Isaiah needed that truth. He he needed to be reminded of that because God wanted Isaiah to understand, yeah, Uzziah is dead, but that's okay. Because it was never really about Uzziah. He really wasn't king of Judah. It was always God who was king of Judah. Always was, always will be. That's exactly what we need to remember. When you feel fearful about all the instability and conflict that you see in the world today, When you feel fearful about the direction that our nation is going, you need to remind yourself the fate of our nation and the fate of our world has never rested in the hands of armies or presidents or courts or Congress. It has always rested in the hands of God and it always will. God calls all the shots. He is an authority over the entire earth. All armies report to him. He's got this. He does not need our worry. He does not need our fear. He does not need our anger. Everything's going to be okay because our God is Lord of all. King of kings, supreme authority over heaven and earth. That's the first thing that God reveals about himself to Isaiah. Second thing he reveals about himself in this passage, he wants Isaiah to understand that God is overwhelming glory. Or glory, it's used a lot in the Bible. What does it mean? It's, it's the word kavod in Hebrew. And, and it means that attribute of God that overwhelms you, that, that pushes you back on your heels, that presses down on you. The word kavod in Hebrew, this is kind of funny. It's actually, it's used in one passage of a king who was really obese, absolutely huge man. He, he filled the room. You could not help but look at him and you feared a little bit that he would sit on you and, and crush you. That's the idea of the word. It's that attribute of God that crushes you, that pushes you back on your heels. You see God's overwhelming glory, his crushing glory throughout the passage. Notice in verse one that the the robe of God that he's wearing, the hem or or the end, the train of his glorious robe, it fills the entire temple, right? Whole temple, all the floor of the temple is covered in God's glorious robe. So 
I assume that Isaiah must be standing in the doorway looking in because there's no room for him in the temple because God's glorious robe fills it all. But it's not just God's robe filling the temple. Verse four, what else is filling the temple? The smoke. I don't know what's making the smoke. I don't know what the smoke is. It's somehow emanating from God's glorious presence and it saturates every cubic foot inside the temple. So it's good that Isaiah is not in the temple because he would suffocate if he was any closer to the glory of God. So God's glory, it fills every cubic inch of this temple, but that's not all. The seraphim say in verse three, it fills the whole earth. God's glory fills the whole earth. So there's no place in the universe where God's glory is not present. God is everywhere present. He is everywhere at work. That's what we mean when we use that term omnipresence for God. God is omnipresent. He is always everywhere fully present and at work in our universe, even if we can't see him. His glory is everywhere. And so what Isaiah is trying to help us understand is that God's glory fills all spaces in our universe. And what's the significance of that? Well, what that means is that the God of the Bible, your God, he will not live in a box. You can't put the God of the Bible in a box. He breaks all boundaries. He goes beyond all limits because his glory fills all spaces. But that's what humanity does. We try to put God in a box. We try to limit and restrict his influence in our lives. He gets one day of the week. We get the rest. He gets the spiritual parts of life. We get all the rest. He gets little things. We get all the rest in our lives. God says, no, that's, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not how I work. I will not respect your boundaries. I will not live in your box. God's glory fills all spaces in the universe and all parts of our lives. So God's glory fills all spaces. That's the first thing that we see in this passage about God's glory. But the second thing that you see about God's overwhelming glory, you can easily miss it. You see it by noticing in those first four verses the one thing that Isaiah does not describe. He's looking at this scene and he describes the throne and the robe and the temple, and the attendants, and the smoke. He describes everything except what? God. There's no description of what God looks like. You you do not hear anything about the appearance of God. Why? Because I don't think Isaiah could look at God. The closest he can do is just raise his eyes to the hem of his garment, maybe to the throne, but he cannot look at the face of God. It's just too overwhelming. It's, It's not Isaiah alone who can't look at God. Who else can't look at God? Seraphim. These these seraphim, that word in Hebrew, it means burning ones, fiery ones. They are glorious in their own right. They're powerful. Their voices shake the temple. And yet God had to give them an extra set of wings to cover their eyes because they cannot look at the unfiltered, unmasked glory of God. And what that's teaching us is that God, if he revealed himself right here in this room, if he came to stand among us in all of his glory and all of his majesty unfiltered, you could not look at him. You would fall on your face and hide your eyes. It would simply overwhelm all of your senses. It would be like when you were a kid and your mom told you not to go stare at the sun. Now, if you're like me, when my mom said, don't go look at something, I just really wanted to go look at it. So what, what must it be? Let's go check this out. So I remember when I was a little kid and my mom told me not to go look at the sun. I do remember there was one time where I disobeyed and I walked outside and I looked up and tried to stare at the sun, but it didn't work. I, I could not keep looking at the sun because my eyes, they started to hurt. They just automatically closed and they were watering and they were painful. And I had these big black spots for a few minutes. 
I could not look at the sun because its glory overwhelmed my senses. That's what it would be like to be with God. It would not be comfortable. It would not be warm. It would be absolutely crushing to stand in the unfiltered glory of God. His glory is overwhelming. That's the second thing that God reveals about himself through Isaiah. His glory is blinding, it is crushing, it is overwhelming. Third thing that God teaches us about himself in this passage is that he is holy. God is holy other. And that's another word that we have to define for a moment because we sing it. We just sang it this morning. We talk about it a lot. But what does it actually mean to be holy? What, what does it mean when we talk about God's holiness? Well, the basic meaning of that word holy, the basic sense of it, to be holy means to be set apart or distinct. To be set apart or distinct. And there's three ways that that word is used in your Bible. So three senses of, of holiness. The first is ceremonial holiness. So people or places or things that, that are set apart, that are separate from common things. So in the temple, when you went to worship God, there was actually a, a holy pair of tongs that you used to make the fire. And, and they were kind of just like the tongs that you had back at your house, made the same way. But these were holy and the ones in your home were not. Because holy, it means to be uncommon, to be separate, to be set apart for a special purpose. So those tongs, they were set apart for the worship of God. So ceremonial holiness, that's, that's the first sense that you have of the word in the Bible. The second is moral holiness, to be set apart from all that is sinful, all that is evil. That's usually what you think of when you hear the word holy. If you were to say that someone is holy, what you mean, morally holy, you mean that, that not only their actions, but their words and their thoughts and their motives are perfect. They're, they're completely righteous before God. There's no sin in any of them. And by that definition, when we're talking about true moral holiness, there's only one being who is morally holy, and that's God. God alone who, who says and does and thinks and feels only good things all the time, only righteous things all the time. So God is morally holy. That's usually what we think of when we talk about God being holy, but, but that's not the only sense in which God is holy. There's something bigger. The third use of this word, God is absolutely holy. His absolute holiness, absolute separation from everything else in the universe Revelation talks about this sense of God's holiness. In Revelation 15, it says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. There's a, a sense in which God is holy that none of us will ever be. We'll never be holy like God is holy because God is holy in, in a whole different way from us. I like to think of it this way. When you think about everything that exists, so, so think for a minute, everything that exists, the universe and God and angels and everything that exists, there are actually only two kinds of things, two kinds of things, God and everything else, God and creation. And the gap separating those two kinds of things, God from creation, it's infinite. So God is not a better version of you and you are not a lesser version of God. God is absolutely infinitely above and separate and distinct from us. I think John Piper, he puts it well when he describes God's absolute holiness. He says God is utterly set apart in a class by himself, unequaled, unrivaled, totally underived, absolute in his being and perfection without beginning or ending or improvement. So God is infinitely above us. He's absolutely separate from us. So God is holy in all of those senses. He is absolutely holy. But you notice what Isaiah is saying. God, Isaiah doesn't just say that God is holy, right? He says that God is 
Holy, holy, holy. And in Hebrew, if you wanted to emphasize something, you just repeat it. So throughout the Old Testament, you'll see lots of places where Hebrew words are repeated once, so doubled for the sake of emphasis. So in the Garden of Eden, when God wanted to warn Adam not to eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what did God say? The moment that you eat of that tree, you will die, die. Meaning you'll really die and it'll be really awful, so please don't do it. So you emphasize something by, by repeating it. So lots of places in, in Hebrew where a word is doubled for the sake of emphasis, only one place in the entire Old Testament where it's tripled for the sake of emphasis, right here. God is holy, holy, holy. The New Testament follows the same paradigm and there is only one place where a word is tripled for the sake of emphasis. And you sang about it this morning from the book of Revelation. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy. Saying it again, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, only one attribute of God that's repeated three times for the sake of emphasis. Not love, love, love. Not patient, patient, patient. Not kind, kind, kind. But holy, holy, holy. Why? Because at the end of the day, this is the most fundamental thing that you need to know about your God. That he is not like us. It's not like the gods of other religions who are just more powerful versions of human beings. No, he's nothing like us. He is nothing like anything in creation. He is absolutely distinct. He is creator and we are infinitely smaller than him. It's the most fundamental thing you need to understand about your God. He is absolutely, completely holy, holy, holy. And and in recognition of that absolute holy, holy, holiness of God, that leads Isaiah to a fourth observation about God, a fourth thing that he learns. Isaiah recognizes that for a sinner like Isaiah or like one of us to come into the presence of the holy, holy, holy creator, that means that God is a fourth thing for us. He is terrifying judge. Holy, holy, holy God. He is our terrifying judge. Look at the next thing Isaiah says, verse 5. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. Isaiah, he's calling a curse down upon himself. I'm ruined. I'm a dead man. My time is up. I'm, I'm about to be destroyed. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. Lips, it's a metaphor for speech. And Isaiah, he recognizes that, that our speech, it, it reveals the condition of our hearts. And just like us, Isaiah had sinned with his words. He had said things that were not true, were not kind, were not loving. He knew that that, that meant that he was a sinner. His heart was sinful, and and here he is a sinner coming into the presence of the holy, holy, holy God of heaven and earth. Isaiah puts two and two together and realizes, this is my moment of doom. It's game over for me. For a sinner to come into the unfiltered, unmasked holiness of God, that means destruction because the holiness of God must punish sin. You see that in Habakkuk 2.4. Your eyes, O God, are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. The holiness of God must punish sin. It must, it must punish sin because that's what sin deserves. Holiness of God must punish sin and that's why we need to understand this. The greatest threat to our safety in this life is the holiness of God. What's the thing you should be most scared of in life? Not terrorists, not warfare, not Satan, but the holiness of God. 
That is the greatest threat to our safety. The holiness of God because he must punish sin. That's what Isaiah recognizes. He is absolutely terrified as he stands before the presence of the holy God. There's this great tragedy in our modern world that by and large, we modern people, we have become bored with God. The thought of spending time with God in his word, for example, it Sounds kind of boring to a lot of us because how can this compete with IMAX 3D movies and Xbox and games in the newly designed Kyle Field? But what can this do compared to that? And so we, we think about spending time with God in prayer and in his word, memorizing scripture, worshiping. And for a lot of us, it seems like kind of a little boring. And so we need to remind ourselves that if we were to stand in the presence of God right here, right now, it would not be boring In fact, the the word boring would be the last adjective in our minds because we would be absolutely, utterly terrified. If God was to show up in our room right now, we would be terrified falling on our faces before him. Even those of us who accepted Jesus at a young age, even those of us who grew up in the church, even those of us who have lived moral lives, we would be terrified. How do I know? Because Isaiah was more moral and righteous than any of us. And yet when he stood in the presence of God, he was utterly terrified. Isaiah understood there was absolutely nothing safe or comfortable or boring about being in the presence of the holy, holy God of heaven and earth. It absolutely terrified him, scared him to death. Now fortunately for Isaiah and for us, the chapter doesn't end here. It does not end with this moment of abject terror for Isaiah because God has one more thing that he wants Isaiah and then he wants us to understand. Final fifth attribute of God that he reveals in this passage. Our God is the gracious giver. Look with me starting in verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. So Isaiah, he deserved death. It's very clear. He understands he is a sinner. He's come to the presence of the holy, holy, holy creator. He deserves to die. Instead of giving him death, God gives him grace. God gives him forgiveness. God shows up and acts in Isaiah's life to take away his sin. And there's actually a couple gifts that God gives Isaiah in in these verses. The first is the, the gift of salvation. God removes the penalty of Isaiah's sins. Uh, This burning coal, it's a symbol of purification. So it it purifies Isaiah, takes away his sin so that Isaiah can be saved from the death that he deserved. I want you to notice a couple things about how God saves Isaiah. The first is it's instantaneous. There's no process that Isaiah has to go through. There's no steps that he has to walk through. No, just boom, instantaneous. And the sin is gone forever. So it's instantaneous. Second thing to notice is It's free. So what did Isaiah have to do to be forgiven? Absolutely nothing. He makes no commitments. He does not get down on his knees. He does not reform his behavior. He does not make any promises. God does all the work and freely, instantly removes Isaiah's sin. That's how salvation has always worked. It is instantaneous and it is free. It is a gift. God does not make you work for forgiveness. He does not make you earn eternal life. You don't come to church for that. I hope that's not why you're here this morning. Eternal life, relationship with God is not something you work for. It's not something you merit. It's not something you earn. It's an absolutely free gift. God offers you forgiveness as a free gift. You don't earn it. Jesus earned it. That's what the cross is all about. 
Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago and he took all of your sin upon himself. And then he died to pay the penalty because someone needed to die for your sin. The holiness of God must punish sin. So Jesus took it instead of you. He took your punishment and then Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death once and for all so that God could offer to you forgiveness as a free gift. You don't work for it. Just like Isaiah, it's instantaneous and free the moment that you say yes to God. The moment that you say, I want that God. I believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sin and rose from the dead. Please forgive me now, just like you forgave Isaiah. It's a free gift to receive. So God offers this free gift to Isaiah that brings salvation from the penalty of sin. But God's not done yet because it is not enough for God just to save us. God is not content just to save you from your sin. God wants to give you something else. Second gift he gives Isaiah is the gift of significance. Look at verse eight. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. God gives Isaiah a significant mission in life, a task for the rest of his life that would be eternally significant to to be God's witness to the world. Now, it's not because God needed Isaiah's help. I think we've seen very clearly our God is not the kind of God who needs anything from us. So God didn't need Isaiah's help. He wanted Isaiah's help. He wanted to invite Isaiah into this significant mission of of taking the glory of God to all people on earth. God has that same invitation for you this morning. God doesn't need your help, but he wants your help. God wants to give you the gift of significance. He wants to call you, invite you to be his witness to the world sharing with the world the love of Christ, sharing with the world the gospel that Jesus has died for our sins and risen from the dead. God invites you into that task. He will not force it upon you just like he didn't force it on Isaiah. He is calling from heaven right now. Who will go for us? Who will be my witness to the world? So will you be like Isaiah? Will you say, here I am, Lord. Send me to be your witness to my neighbors, to my coworkers, to my friends, to my relatives to the far corners of the earth. Will you go? That's what God wants for your life. He wants to invite you into a life of significance and and meaning. He wants to give you this task to be a witness for Jesus Christ. But, But that's a hard calling. It is difficult to be a witness for Christ in a hostile world. And we're not gonna do it. We're not gonna put forth the work and the sacrifice to be a witness for God if God is small in our sight, if he is insignificant to us, if we take him lightly. And so I, I wanna end by, by challenging you to ask yourself really honestly as you think about God, how big is my God? Now, I don't mean the theological question here, not how big is God theologically or biblically. I mean the personal question. How big is God to you in your mind? How, how big is your personal conception of God? How big is he to you? Is, is your God big enough to inspire a healthy dose of fear in you? When you think about that day, when you're going to stand before God face to face, unfiltered in his presence, does that fill you with at least a little bit of fear, a little bit of seriousness, a little bit of concern? Or does the thought of standing before God in heaven feel safe and comfortable and a little bit boring? If so, then, then you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. That's not Isaiah's God. Is your God big enough to instill at least a, a healthy dose of fear in you?
Second, is your God big enough to demand your complete obedience? When you think about God, is he so great and glorious and holy that, that you can't help but, but offer him your obedience? You, you want to give him all of your life, every part of it. Or does your God only get little parts of your life? One day a week, certain portions of life. Is, is he negotiable? Can you make bargains with him? Will he excuse small sins? If so, he, then he's not the God of the Bible. It's not Isaiah's God. So Isaiah's God is holy, holy, holy. Absolute supreme authority over heaven and earth. Finally, when you think about God, is your God big enough to meet all of your needs? When you think about everything that you need in life, do do you believe that God is big enough to meet all of those needs, that he's got everything taken care of so that you can trust him with all of your fears, all of your worries, all of your anxieties? Or do you feel like, like God needs your help, like you need to control things and manage things and he needs your worry, he needs your anxiety, he needs your, your concern and your control for things to work out in your life? Well, if your God needs anything from you, then he's not the God of the Bible. He's not Isaiah's God. As you walk through these questions, if you feel a little bit convicted that maybe your conception of God has been a little bit too small, maybe you've been taking God too lightly, let me encourage you by telling you you should just join the club because that's what we all do. All of us, myself included, we're guilty of going through our day-to-day life with a small view of God. We take him for granted. We take him lightly. We do not recognize how great and splendid and glorious he is. So how do we correct that? Well, by spending time in passages like this one. That's why God gave you Isaiah 6. This moment that was between God and Isaiah, it could have stayed between just God and Isaiah. But God invites you into this passage on a regular basis to go here often to remind yourself how great and holy and fearfully awesome your God is. This is actually one of the passages in my Bible that gets read every year. It's a dog leaf page. Every year I'm going to read this passage, maybe more than every year, because I need to remember that this is my God. And so I want to challenge you, every one of us, I want to challenge us today or tomorrow, today or tomorrow, I want to encourage you to take 15 minutes, just 15 minutes, and get alone with Isaiah chapter 6. I want you to reread while it's fresh in your mind. Reread verses 1 through 8 and think about them. Meditate on them. Pray about them. And I want you to ask yourself really honestly, If you were to actually have been there in the temple with Isaiah on this moment, if you were to have been there and seen God as he appears in Isaiah chapter 6, if you were to see him today just like Isaiah saw him then, how would that change how you live today or tomorrow or later this week? What effect would that have on your life if you were to see God in all of his glory and holiness? I want you to ask yourself that and then I want you to spend some of that 15 minutes praying and asking that God would grow your fear for him and your love for him because both are appropriate responses to God. A God who is this great, who is this holy, who is this gracious, he demands equal parts fear and love, reverence and devotion. So pray that God would grow your love and your fear for him, that he would become bigger in your sight so that everything else in your life feels small by comparison to him. Let's pray that he begin to do that even now in our hearts. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are great and mighty, that you are glorious, that you are awesome and splendid. We praise you for your holiness, that you are not like us, that you are never touched by sin or evil. We thank you for your supreme authority that there is no place on this planet where your sovereignty is not absolute. 
We thank you for who you are. And, and as we come into your presence, Lord, we are blown away by the fact that a God like you would choose to care about people like us. We do not deserve the smallest amount of your attention. We do not deserve anything from you except death, except destruction, because we chose to rebel against you. And yet you, the holy, awesome, supreme authority of heaven and earth, you have chosen in grace to forgive us. You've chosen to send your son to take the penalty, the punishment that our sins deserved. Your holiness punished Jesus instead of us. We do not and will never deserve that. Thank you that a God like you would choose to love and forgive a people like us. And Father, we confess to you that as we walk through our day-to-day lives, it's easy to take you for granted. It's easy to, to let you become small in our sight, not because you are small, but because we are so sinful and so forgetful. And so we pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, that your word would sink in deeply, that your spirit would convict us and transform us until you come to to be larger in our sight. We pray, Lord, that you would grow our devotion to you, our fear of you, our love for you. We pray that you would become bigger and more absolute in our minds so that everything else feels small by comparison to you. You are worthy of our worship and our obedience and our devotion. We thank you that you have forgiven us through Jesus Christ, your son. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.